Another thing, yesterday, as I sat at Park City's Baptist Church and celebrated Russell's life, Dr. Russell H. Dilday, he comes from a family of ministers. Many of you know about that history, and I won't recount that. But just his long shadow and his influence, well over 50 years of ministry, began after he graduated from Southwestern Seminary, pastor of uh, church in Antelope, and then in Houston at Tallawood, and then second Ponce de Leon in Atlanta, president of Southwestern Seminary, and then later president of the BGCT, as I mentioned earlier. And you know, those are all very important places in which he served. And we often identify a person's significance by the positions that that person has held. But as we listened yesterday, it was very obvious that Dr. Dilday's real impact was as a person, was as a person of character and integrity, and also as a mentor. Person after person after person reflected upon how he was a pastor who cared for them and influenced them and mentored them, and another word for it is disciple them. You know, just an example of that as I was thinking, if I were to do this this morning, we don't have the time to do it, but if step by step by step I ask you to stand, if you were a if you were a faculty member at Southwestern when he was there, some would stand. Students, some would stand. A member of a church where he was pastor, some more would stand. Member of a church where a pastor had come from Southwestern during his administration, would you stand? Are you a family member of one? Would you stand? Before we would be finished, everyone would be standing. Thank you, Norma. <laughs> and we're not going to do all of that. But you know what? They do it at Southwestern Seminary to this day at graduation. Faculty members stand, students stand, parents stand, that sort of thing. And before long, everyone is standing. We did it at B.H. Carroll Theological Institute. Do you know where that came from? It came from the administration in the time of Russell H. Dilday, because he is the one that would stand up in the beginning and he would welcome everybody. And it was rather a humorous sort of thing because after he goes to about the eighth level and everybody's standing, then he would finally say, well, if you just wandered in off the street, we're glad that you're here, you know, in the family. My point is this, you see, that is the influence of a person that is a discipler that spreads his or her influence like rippling waves in a pond until it then hits the bank of the pond all around. You know, Paul was that way. We know Paul is a theologian and an epistle writer and an apostle. But the other way of measuring his importance, you know, most of those epistles were discipling instruments. He discipled the Romans. He discipled the Corinthians. He discipled the Ephesians and the Philippians, and he wrote other letters to churches where he had not been. He discipled the Thessalonians. He discipled individuals. If you go through the Scripture, it depends on how you want to look at it, but I would count probably about 20 protégés, persons that he discipled, and many others that were companions with him, fellow workers, but 20 persons that he invested his life in and they went then and invested their lives in others, like Timothy, Titus, Silas, and Luke. And if you look at the 20th chapter of Acts, you see he had companions that he mentored on the journey, on the third journey, as he leaves then Macedonia and returns to Syria. This is just a snapshot of the people that he influenced and discipled. Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and Aristarchus, and Secundus of the Thessalonians, 
and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, of course, and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. And who's missing on that list because he wasn't there, but a little bit later down in verse number 13 joins them again, we. Luke reminds us that he was also later in that group. You see, these are people that Paul not just influenced, but he poured his life into. He discipled them. They were commissioned together. They were on mission together, and that's what the word means, really, to be on mission together. And we're going to talk about the Great Commission this morning. The roots of it come from a Latin word, two Latin words, com, which doesn't just mean uh, with, it means together, to be bound together. And then missio, which doesn't just mean to be on mission, it means to be sent on mission. To be commissioned means that we are sent together on mission. Today, Jane Hartley in Great Britain is commissioned. That's one definition of the word. She has been authorized by the President of the United States and been given a portfolio as an ambassador to Great Britain to the Court of St. James. Some are commissioned in different ways. Walt Coode, one of our artists, Mary Morgan, Scott Hookers, they will sometimes receive a commission, and that is somebody then ask them to paint or to make some work of art. And usually along with that is some form of payment. That's the verbal aspect, but the noun has a different kind of context. I remain a commissioned officer in the Army of the United States, though I am retired. I've got a couple of commissions on my wall. Many of you have been there and done that. The other day I sat in the, uh, the sub-courthouse waiting in a long line to pay for my tag. And of course, whom, whom did I pay? I paid Wendy Burgess, who is the commissioner, tax commissioner here in Tarrant County, you see. So some have a role as a commissioner. The Warren Commission in 1963 to 64, seven people on that commission. It included, of course, Earl Warren, Chief Justice, Hale Boggs from Louisiana, Representative, and a future president of the United States, Gerald Ford. The Warren Commission, you see, they had a task to fulfill, and that was to investigate the assassination of the previous president, John F. Kennedy. So we use that word in a number of different ways, and it's also that way in Scripture. I've defined authorization and a task, a role, and a group. Well, you see it in Scripture in the Old Testament. Noah was one of the first to be commissioned. He was commissioned with a task. Build this ark, Noah and rescue humanity. The next that I see is Abram. Abraham. He is commissioned and he has a role. His commissioned role is to be a patriarch, and that is a great father to bless all families of all nations. And then you see Israel gathered then there at Mount Sinai in Exodus the 19th chapter, and God commissions them. He says, the reason I'm calling you, you have a couple of purposes. You're commissioned to be a what? A priesthood a priesthood that is going to influence many nations, and you, in fact, are commissioned also to be a holy nation. Later, we see with the prophets. Usually, he did not commission a group of prophets, but individual prophets, and they were charged like ambassadors. They were given authority to lead and to challenge Israel to be reformed. And sometimes this involved the passing of a mantle. So we see Moses, a prophet, who passes the mantle on to Joshua so that they will not be without a shepherd. And of course, the obvious example of that is Elijah. As he ascends, his mantle drops to the ground and Elisha picks it up. You see, this has to do with being called together as disciples. In the New Testament, commissions, I see three of them. 
We talked about one of them a couple of weeks ago when we looked at Matthew, the 10th chapter, the commissioning of the 12. And then he has a fairly long passage, 38 verses of explaining who they are to be and what they are to do and warning them about some of the problems that they are going to face. There is a second commission, the commissioning of the 70, found in Luke, the 10th chapter. It's a little shorter, but not much. It's about half that long, 15 verses. I read before we started the service in John's gospel, it's very short. As Father has sent me, so send I you. In in, um, the passage that we look at today, it's very brief. It's a lot briefer than the commissioning of the, of, the, of the 12. Found in Matthew, the 28th chapter, well-known passage. We call it the Great Commission passage. The actual commission part is found in verses 18 through 20. You see, what's happened after the Lord's Supper, before he goes to Gethsemane on the way, he tells them, I will leave and I will go ahead of you to where? Where, congregation? To Galilee. And then later, at the empty tomb, Mary and the other women go there, and an angel, one account says one angel's there, but there, was, there were two, and another account reminds us that there was a second angel. One of the angels then tells her, You're going to go, you need to go tell the disciples then to join him as he has told you in Galilee. So Mary and the women go, and they find Peter and John. John go then to the tomb, and then Mary goes back. And she has an encounter with the Lord himself. And then the Lord says to her, go tell the disciples to meet me in Galilee. And they are amazed when when she tells them this, they are disbelieving. They cannot imagine that the Lord has been resurrected. But later, of course, they encounter him behind closed doors. So where is this? We mentioned this about three or four weeks ago when we looked at the beginning of the Great Commission in the first two verses. It may have been Mount Aramis where we think perhaps the Sermon on the Mount was preached. And of course, that's where he taught them all of these things that they are to obey. It may have been Mount Tabor. We're not sure. That's where he, of course, was transfigured. Most people believe that it was Mount Arbel which is the highest point on the west side of the Sea of Galilee that looks over the whole sea. And you can see most of Galilee from the top. And there they are. Certainly the 11 disciples have come because that's what the passage says. Some scholars think that maybe this is where also the 500 at one time may have seen them. They may have joined the 11 disciples. And beginning in verse number 16 of chapter 28, let's stand for the reading of God's word. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw them, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's have a seat. You know, there are other charges like this in Scripture. I mentioned them earlier. In Mark's gospel, he gives a command there. It's a little different. It's not make disciples. He says, go what? Preach. Preach the good news to all of the earth, even to all of creation. In Luke's gospel, it begins at the end of Luke in chapter 24, and it continues in Acts 1. You are witnesses of these things, the resurrection and my presence 
and miraculous power as the resurrected Lord. And then in Acts, the first chapter, of course, he says, you will be my witnesses, but wait in Jerusalem until you're baptized with the Spirit, until the Spirit then gives you the power to go into Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even the uttermost parts of the world. And John's gospel, as brief as it is, it's found in the 20th chapter. And there, after he has commissioned them and sent them, he breathes the Holy Spirit upon them, and he tells them your responsibility is to see that people's sins are forgiven through the Father. In this passage this morning, there are three or four things I want us to see. One is that Jesus sends each one of us on this mission. Together, we are commissioned. That's what the word means. We are sent together, all of us, on the Great Commission. A second point is that Jesus then entrusts us with a legacy as we go. A legacy, and I'll describe what that is, but the legacy is basically to make disciples and build the kingdom. And then he shows us how to build the kingdom when he talks about baptizing and teaching. And then finally, he reminds us, having been given all power and authority, he reminds us that he is forever with us, and he makes an abiding promise. You see, Jesus sends us all on mission, and he says, go therefore, in verse number 19, and I know you've heard me say it many times, and you've heard other preachers and Sunday school teachers say it, the go is not the imperative. The go is a participle. The imperative is to do what? Make disciples. There are three participles here, going and baptizing and teaching. But there's one imperative, and that is to make disciples. What he's saying here, could you turn back the echo a little bit, please? What he's saying here is that wherever we go, each one of us, as we go into our places of work or school or business or wherever we are, have recreation or whatever we're doing in life, we have a responsibility to make disciples in all of life's pathways. It's not necessary for people to pick up and go somewhere to be a disciple maker. We should disciple whenever and whomever God calls us to disciple. But we should not miss the imperative thrust of that participle. And sometimes what we do is we water that go as we're going down to, well, we're pretty casual about it, folks. No, there is an imperative thrust to that first participle. You see, we are all sent ones. When we pray as we are, that God will send workers into the fields, you are some of those workers already. And we pray for God to send other workers. And they are sent ones into the field. We're all commissioned. We are sent together. Matthew 10 makes that very clear. And Jesus in John 20, when he says, even I, you see, was sent. The Father sent me. I was commissioned by the Father. And as he commissioned me, I commissioned all of you. We should not miss the imperative thrust of that. In addition to that, some are actually sent to go. Right, Garvin's? Oregon. Some are called to be home missionaries. Some are called to be foreign missionaries. To go where? If we do not have that understanding of the imperative intention of this participle, folks, then we do not reach all nations. We do not reach all of creation. It does call some of you, maybe some of you seminarians, as you look at what you're going to do, as you finish your academic career here at Southwestern. He may call you to stay right here in Fort Worth, but most of you he will call to places like Arkansas or Washington or Florida or wherever, or he may even call you to 
a nation abroad, all ethnicities, all backgrounds, all families. How else will we reach all creation? Let's not water down that participle. It has an imperative thrust. And there are four aspects of being sent that I see. Who is it that's sent? Well, they're personal agents. They're personal agents that have portfolios. They're personal agents that have portfolios with a plan of action that God gives us, and that plan of action leads to a specific purpose. You see, they're personal agents. What does that mean? Well, every person that is commissioned as a personal agent is a couple of things. First of all, they're a Christ follower, and then secondly, they're a witness when we look at Acts 1. You see, his disciples, I like the way Clyde puts it. You know, if you ask a person if they're a Christian out there in society, they'll, a lot of them will say, well, yes, they are, because culturally they think that they are. But that's different than being a Christ follower, being a disciple. Being a Christ follower means one is a disciple. What does that mean? It means that uh, it's a person that desires to be with Christ, a person that wants to become like Christ, and a person that is committed to obey Christ. You see, what they've done is they've listened to him in Luke's gospel, the ninth chapter, verse number 23. If you're going to follow me, if you're going to be a Christ follower, you must then what? Deny yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me. You see, there is a commitment as a follower. If a person is a personal agent that's a disciple, it's not only being a disciple, but it's also being a witness. Like the apostles, it says that they gave witness in Luke 24. You have witnessed these things that have happened, and you're going to then be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and you're going to go forth as witness even to the uttermost parts of the world. So we're personal agents that are Christ's followers who are disciples and witnesses, but we're also a second thing in this commission, and it's very important. And sometimes we don't emphasize this enough. We're also God's covenant people. We're God's covenant people who are representatives of God Almighty, the Creator we're God's covenant, covenant people who are heralds, we're messengers. You see, we're, we're kingdom ambassadors. Paul makes this very clear in 2 Corinthians. We're, we're ambassadors that are commissioned with credentials and a portfolio then to go forth for Christ. And we're also heralds. That's what the apostles were, messengers. We're messengers that Jesus Christ is coming again as well. So we're personal agents in that respect as we go, but we also have portfolios. We have credentials, like an ambassador. As Christ followers, what is our portfolio? What is the thing that we are to accomplish and do? It's very simple. Proclaim the gospel. So in Mark's gospel at the end in chapter 16, he puts the commission a little bit differently. He says, go preach the good news to all nations, to all of creation. Also, as covenant people, we have a portfolio. It's not just preaching and proclaiming, but as covenant people, we are responsible for doing something beyond that, and that is to build the kingdom. And then he gives us a plan with that portfolio. As Christ's followers, as disciples, it's very clear we have the same plan that he had. The Father sent me to do what? To seek and to what? He sent me to seek and do what? Save the lost. And as Christ's followers, that is the plan of action for us wherever we go. But beyond that, as covenant people, as kingdom covenant people, we don't just seek and save the lost. In the Sermon on the Mount, he says, seek ye first the what? 
the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You see, we are agents of righteousness and building the kingdom. That's involved in this commission. And so we're personal agents. We have, a port, we have portfolios, and we have a plan of action as both disciples and as covenant people. And they come together in this purpose in the Great Commission. And the purpose is very simply this, to preserve the legacy of Jesus Christ and to advance it. To preserve and advance the legacy of Jesus Christ, and that is the redemptive purpose of the Father. And the redemptive purpose of the Father is, yes, that all should be saved, but beyond that, make them into disciples. And so this then takes us from the first point, which is Jesus sends us all to do these things. And then he entrusts us with his legacy. What is the legacy? Our imperative purpose is to make disciples of all nations in verse number 19. What is the meaning of that? Well, the word disciple really means learner, pupil. Another way of putting it is you've got a master, and in the guild system you had a master and a journeyman, and who who is the entry person? The apprentice. To, To be a disciple simply means that we are apprentices of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he brings us other under other journeymen. He is the master. There are disciples who are journeymen, and we then become disciples under them. That's, that's one meaning of the word. It, it, it can mean learner or pupil, but it also, in a different form, can mean a couple of other things. It can mean in the imperative to become a disciple or to make disciples. And that's what is used here, mathotusite. I asked this the other evening, and Joe responded in the prayer meeting, what, what does that word mean? And I like the way he put it. It means disciplize. But, but you see, before we think about making other people disciples, we must make ourselves disciples. That is part of the imperative. We must become a disciple. According to the rabbinic tradition, disciples, students followed a master, the goal being that they would, of course, become like the master, they would be with the master, and they would obey the master. But there was a goal beyond that. Someday then the master would die and they would become the master. When we apply this to ourselves, we must first become disciples, totally submitting to the Lord. And we join him in this process of his making us into disciples. For Christ followers in the Gill system, though, we never become the master. You see, we are always perpetually, forever, ongoingly disciples of Jesus Christ. We're always pupils, and he is always the rabbi. John 13, he puts it this way. You call me teacher, you call me Lord, and and you do right to say that because I am. He says, verily, truly, truly, I say to you that a slave is no greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. So he, he warns us here. In this discipling process, we as disciples should never, ever consider ourselves to be the master, the rabbi, only he is. And he tells us this in Matthew, the 23rd chapter. Don't call yourselves rabbis. Don't call yourselves teachers. Now, he's not saying that we don't become teachers, but he's saying there is one rabbi. There is one master, and I am he. You see, when we disciple people, it's not that we, that we, we want them to imitate us as we imitate Christ, but the goal is that they become like him. As God calls you to disciple others, he may be call, call you to be a journeyman but you're a journeyman on the behalf of the master.
And then you make disciples, and there's a mandate in making disciples. Jesus duplicated himself by calling the twelve. One fell out, he was replaced, Matthias replaced him. And he duplicated himself so that he could multiply his ministry. He said this, 10th chapter of Matthew, freely you have received, do what? Freely give. Well, that has to do with ministry, but it also has to do with discipleship. You see, we become stewards of discipleship in the Great Commission in Matthew, the 13th chapter. One other place where this word mathetusate, make disciples, is used, puts it this way. Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings out his treasure of things old and new. That is the responsibility of disciple makers. If you're a disciple of the kingdom of God, he has enriched you with the treasures of the kingdom of God, and then he calls you to do what? Bring them out and share them. And then Jesus says in this commission, now what I want you to do is I have duplicated myself in you, now I want you to reduplicate, reduplicate yourself in others. Which means then what you do is you make Christ's followers who are disciples, who want to be with the Lord, who want to become like Him, and who want to obey Him, taking up their cross. But beyond that, folks, it doesn't stop there. We also, he calls us to reduplicate ourselves in them so that they will become witnesses, ambassadors, and heralds. Committed to two things in the plan. Remember, what are they? To seek and to save the lost, and to seek and build the kingdom of God. And they follow you as disciples so they might become like Christ and do those things. There's a process that's involved. First, they must be saved. And this is the gospel portfolio, to seek and to save the lost. Wherever we go, we have that responsibility to call the lost to the Lord. And the lost become believers. They become Christ followers. They're saved. They enter the kingdom. And folks, sometimes we stop there. We must not stop there. We must continue and fulfill our responsibility as covenant people of God the Father and build a kingdom. We fulfill the kingdom portfolio then in depth by spiritually forming people, by giving them some spiritual depth and, and teaching them. But we also fulfill the kingdom portfolio in breadth. We go to all nations, all ethnicities, all corners of the community of Fort Worth and Dallas and beyond, and Texas and beyond. And the goal then is to do what? It is to fulfill the purpose that God gave Abram in Genesis 12. What did he say to Abram? I am commissioning you. Your role is you're going to be a great father. You're a patriarch. And in that role, you are going to do what? You're going to bless all families in the earth. And that is what this is about. It also fulfills the redemptive purpose of God. And what is God's redemptive purpose? Paul tells Timothy, his disciple, he says very clearly, God would, he wishes that everyone would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So in this great commission, he sends all of us on mission. And then he entrusts us with this legacy of reduplicating disciples that aren't just saved, but they become witnesses and heralds and covenant people to build the kingdom. And then he shows us how to build the kingdom. How do you build a kingdom? There were two foundational ways of building the kingdom in the New Testament church. The kerygma, the proclamation, and the didache, the teaching of the apostles. And he, he describes these here. The kerygma, the proclamation, is expressed through the symbol of baptism in verse number 19. Baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And of course we know what this means. It symbolizes the spiritual death that a disciple has undergone. 
dead, buried, resurrected, and raised to walk in what? In newness of life. This is what theologians would call a charismatic act. What does charismatic mean? Well, charisma is proclamation. When a person is baptized in the water, they have already been baptized by the Holy Spirit. They have already believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, and it's symbolic of that. It is a proclamation. It is a preaching of a sermon. It's a preaching of the gospel. Romans 6 puts it this way. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism unto death. You see, that's happened spiritually already. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we might too walk a new life. So baptism symbolizes that, and it's Trinitarian. In the name of the Father, because the Father has created us, And the Father has forgiven us. The Father has created us and has forgiven us through Jesus Christ and reconciled us to Him. And He brings us into His family, into the covenant kingdom family. In the name of the Son, because He's the one who redeems and justifies, makes us righteous, restores us to the Father and gives us that new life as Lord and Savior. And the name of the Holy Spirit, because He is the one who then sanctifies and empowers us and guides us to walk the Christian life. There is an ecclesial, there's a church purpose in all of this. You see, through baptism, what it does is it identifies people who have committed themselves as disciples and joined the circle of faith and come into the congregation. And there is accountability in that baptized fellowship. When we come to the Lord's Supper, one of the things that we say at the beginning, we invite you to come to the table and celebrate with us. We don't just say, if you are a believer, we say, if you're a baptized believer, You have stepped forth and proclaimed that you are a committed follower of Jesus Christ. And you can come to the table with us. There's also teaching. And that's not the charismatic, the proclamation side. That is the the didache, the teaching. Teaching them to observe all the things that I have commended you. Everything that Jesus taught. He fulfilled the law and the prophets. And this becomes the foundation of the New Testament church. The foundation of the New Testament church was the apostles the teachings that he had given them, and the prophets, the old covenant with Jesus as the cornerstone. And in this, beyond what Jesus has told us, he tells us that he is also going to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit then will teach us and remind us of the things that he has said, and he will guide us into all truth. So the teachings that we have are the teachings of the apostles and the prophets with Jesus as a cornerstone who has fulfilled those things, and then he informs us as we read his word and the Holy Spirit guides us. The content, of course, is the doctrine and the practice of the church, God's commandments by which disciples live. The word discipline is built on the word disciple. And so this gives us the discipline by which disciples live. And we do what? We teach information, we teach knowledge, but it goes beyond that. If it only goes beyond the passing of knowledge, folks, it's of very little effect. It's more than cognitive knowledge. We also do it through effective ways, through relationships, and also through demonstrating and showing through psychomotor actions. You see, this is is all of the conveying of knowledge. Beverly's got a sign in the children's section. And it says it very well. Tell me and I what? I forget. Show me and I do what? I remember. Involve me and I understand. I could not find a better illustration of this than what happened last week in VBS. 
The kids, yes, they memorized the Bible verses. They had the information. But that was a great picture of showing all of this together. Teaching is not just conveying of information. It is ingraining it in the emotional and the activity, emotional and activity part of life. And modeling, showing people by example. God calls you to be an example so that when people look at you, you can say, as Paul did, imitate me as I imitate Christ. This is what Barnabas did with Paul. It's what Paul did with Timothy. You see it then being passed on. It's what Priscilla and Aquila did with Apollos. And it's what Peter did with John Mark. You see, this discipling is more than passing on information. It is mentoring. As we, as we said about Russell Bilday, the thousands that he mentored directly or indirectly. But it also has to do with discipline. Disciples follow a discipline, and they're obedient to Christ, and they keep His commandments, and they're accountable. And it's comprehensive. He says, doing what? All these things that I have commanded you. Now, what are all the things that He has commanded us? Well, obviously, the Ten Commandments. And, and then as we look at the Sermon on the Mount. But folks, it's not just limited to that. Remember, as we started this series, we said that there are probably about a hundred imperatives that Jesus gives us in the New Covenant. And that's what we're looking at over the next year and a half. That's what he's saying. All these things that I have told you. Be obedient to all of those things. And Jesus sends us all on mission. He entrusts us with the legacy of making disciples, which builds the kingdom. And then he shows us how to build the kingdom through proclamation and through teaching. And then finally, he gives us his all-powerful, an abiding promise. All authority, you may have wondered why I didn't cover this at the beginning. Why didn't I cover the part about all authority is given to me because it's linked to the end of the passage. All authority has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. You see, all of his authority comes from the Father. He fulfills the Father's plan to become the Son of Man that Daniel talks about. And to him was given dominion, glory, and the kingdom that all the peoples and all the nations and all the persons of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom and dominion, and it will not pass away. This is talking about the coming of the Son of Man who is Jesus Christ, and his kingdom is one which will never be destroyed. What he's saying here, this authority that he has been given as a result of being the resurrected Lord, he has been given a rule that is above all, he says in Ephesians. He has been exalted with a name that is above all names, and someday every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and beneath the earth. He has complete dominion. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He is seated at the right hand of majesty on high. All authority has been given to him. He is of supreme authority. And folks, when we go forth as disciples, as witnesses, as covenant kingdom builders, he shares that authority with us. He, he never gives it up. He never relinquishes it. He's always in control of it, but he shares a bit of that with you wherever you go. Wow. What a privilege. What a responsibility to be sent together, to be commissioned together wherever you go this next week, to be reminded that you go in the name of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that's not just a metaphor. It's reality. And someday he is going to come on clouds with great power and great glory and manifest it in such a way that everyone will know it. But in the meantime, 
He who is the light of the world has called you to be the light of the world. He has called you to go out with a sword of the Spirit and poke the holes in the darkness and bring light into a dying world. And he gives you this confidence then with an abiding promise. And lo, I, lo, I, the Son of God, with all authority and power, the name that is above all names, I am the ruler of the universe. All rulers and authority are in my submission. I am with you always, wherever you go, even to the end of the earth. And then, and then he seals this promise. He's promised them, I'll never leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. I'll be with you. And lo, I'm with you always. This sounds what God said to Israel. He said it to Moses and then to Joshua. Lo, I am with you always. I will never forsake you. I will never leave you. I will never abandon you. And it's fulfilled in the new covenant. And folks, it is a marvelous way in which he says it. It's one of the two instances in Matthew where he uses the I am formula. And you know what that means. He's not just saying, I, Jesus, am with you. He is saying, I am. I am who is the visible representation of the great I am that was there at the mountain with Israel. The I am, which Jesus uses in Matthew only one other time, and that is when he is walking on the water and the disciples are frightened from their toes to their head, and he looks at them and he says, don't worry, don't be troubled. I am with you. Wherever you go this week, whatever you experience this week, no matter whom you encounter, if the Lord places on your heart as a part of his great commission to share something of the gospel with a lost person, it can be intimidating. It can be fearful. It can worry about it. Should I speak? Shouldn't I speak? If he places it on your heart and the Holy Spirit convicts you to do so, do it with boldness. Because you know what? He says, I am with you. And not just now, but to the end of the age until I come back. He abides in every circumstance, friends. He abides in every difficulty, no matter what problem you face this next week. He said it to Paul. Paul was discouraged. He was downcast. Remember last week we talked about being dispirited and distressed. And there he is sitting in Corinth. He doesn't, he doesn't know what to do. Should he continue with his ministry or not? He's, been, he's had to leave the synagogue. And he's being besieged by Jews that are attacking him. And God says to Paul, don't be afraid. Have no longer any fear. But keep on speaking. Don't be silent. For I am with you. And no person will attack you in order to harm you. Folks, wherever you go, he is with you. You see, there's an allness in this great commission. There's an allness. All power, all authority is given to Jesus. He calls us to go to all nations, all ethnicities, and to observe all the things that he has taught us and be obedient. And he promises us. He promises you wherever you go. And lo, I will be with you always even to the end of the age. Would you pray with me? Father, in this season of prayer, this special season of prayer, which we have begun,
May it continue beyond thanksgiving. May it transform us as believers. May it transform your church and your congregation so that when we pray, we believe these things which we ask you to accomplish in the life of your kingdom that you will do. And Father, as we do this, as we recommit ourselves following your great commission, remind us that you are with us wherever we go and that we have a great, great privilege to share your son Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And our prayer is this morning that all the people that are listening, all the people that are watching, wherever this word may be proclaimed today or through the internet, however it is, into the ages to come, that if somebody watches this message, they will be reminded that you, Father, love them. And if they're lost in sin and separated from you, they can turn to your son, Jesus Christ, and believe in him and he will forgive their sins and restore that person to you and bring that person into the family of God so they might have eternal life. May we be faithful to that gospel proclamation and may we also continue to be faithful in building the kingdom and baptizing believers and teaching them to observe all things which you have commanded. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The invitation is open this morning. Maybe God has spoken to you in some special way to make some kind of commitment. Elias made his public last week. Maybe God's calling upon you to make a public proclamation of what God is doing in your life. What is God's pleasure with you this morning as we stand and sing our hymn of invitation?